In John 4.22, Jesus stated that salvation is from the Jews. All that we have has come to us through those who are ethnically Jewish. Our Bible is a Jewish book, and Jesus was a Jewish man. God made it clear to the Jewish people in Deuteronomy 7 that the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God also promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that from him a great nation would be born that would be a blessing. And God also said that I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. If this is God's promise to the Jewish people, how do we make sense of the secular nation of Israel? Does that mean that no matter what happens, Christians must support the nation of Israel no matter what political or military decisions they make? How do we make sense of the ethnic Jews that haven't received Jesus as their Messiah? Are they still chosen by God? And how should we love them? How should we share Jesus with them? And is it true that when God makes his coffee, he brews? <laughs> Get it? Because like, Jewish? <laughs> Never mind. Well, welcome everybody to the Beards and Bible podcast. My name is Josh, and I'm joined by uh, a fellow with a beard that's starting to come back, the return of the beard. It's not in full force as it once was, but the glory of the beard shall be restored in the last days, I believe. Mm. And his his name is Gabe Rutledge. Gabe, how are you doing today, man? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, my, my shame is almost over. I'm <laughs> back. But you know, it's it's coming back grayer than what I remember it being. Mm, serves you right. Serves yeah. you right. Yeah. Do you have much gray? Because like I look like mm-hmm. Santa Claus slash Kenny Rogers with my beard game. Mm, that's a creepy combination. It is. Uh, yeah, I do. I have like that. I got struck by a lightning patch on, like on the very top of my head mm-hmm. um, that I, I'm proud of. It looks, uh, you know, how, you know, do you know that like gray hair is kind of like a thing? Like like young young people dye their hair gray. What? Yeah, like they do like gray gray spots in their hair or something like that. I, I don't know. Why Maybe. would a young person ever want to do that? I have been insecure about my gray since my late 20s. Hmm. I don't know. But yeah. I, I like it. I, I'm embracing it. So does that mean I'm cool now cuz all the kids are wanting to go gray and I'm already gray and I don't have to try? Yeah. You're like a you're like a early blossoming <laughs> Anderson Cooper. <laughs> So I remember back in college, you had quite the hairdo and quite the get up. Yeah, uh, we used to call you Swoopy Gabe. Yeah, yeah. You was... you had what was it called? The reverse mullet. It was like the uh, <laughs> the long swoop in the front and nothing in the back. Yeah, I don't know. It was like just a flippy hair. Yeah, um, and it was bleach blonde. That yeah. was what I remember. Yeah, but it worked. I snagged. I snagged Stacy. <laughs> and then I cut it all off because I was like, oh, <laughs> well, your military career probably had something to do with that, I would imagine. Yeah, so. true, true. Did you have the blonde flippy hair when you went to boot camp? No, I had I had cut it off prior to that. Um, okay. You didn't want to get that humiliating experience of getting made fun of getting no, it cut off right no, when you went in? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, it is springtime and graduations are happening and you're getting ready to go on a mission trip next week and yeah. you're out of school and my kids are out of school and we are, uh, yeah, venturing into the days of the summer and, uh, yeah. Yeah. One I, of the- I made the mistake of, of playing paintball with, with several of my students the other day and, uh, I realized quickly that I am too old to play paintball. <laughs> <laughs> I, I stepped on those. I was running across this field and I stepped on this pine root that was poking out of the ground and I rolled my ankle so bad. And then I, then not only that, I fell down and my shin bone landed on a different pine root. Oh man. So I am like incapacitated right now with pain and swollenness in my ankle. Do you, do you think you broke it or do you think it's just a sprain? Do you know? I thought I did that night. I could not move it at all and I couldn't even move my toes. And uh, it's slowly gotten better. And I'm like, great. That's that's all of all things I need uh, a week before I you know, travel. I was about to say, yeah, you're you're uh, I, that's one of the things that is, yeah, really, really inconvenient uh, mm-hmm. as you're going to a place like that is you do a lot of walking and you do a lot of hiking. 
mm-hmm. at least when I go to Uganda, I would imagine it'd be the same for you. But yeah, yeah. hopefully that gets healed up, man. Yeah, we're going to we're gonna actually try something I've never done, and that is whitewater rafting. So Ooh. I'm going full on whitewater rafting, uh, class five rapids on the Nile River. <laughs> and I think we're going to camp awesome. on the banks of the Nile River, so we'll see how that goes. Yeah, man. That's really, but, really I think, cool. I think you've got a whitewater rafting story. I don't know if it's um, rated appropriate for this podcast, but... <sighs> Do I have a whitewater rafting story? If you want to hear Josh's whitewater rafting story from when he was a child, just email him and he will <laughs> send it to you. Something about a guide wearing shorts that are too oh, short. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can allude to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we'll keep it PG, so... You want me to go ahead and tell the story real quick? I'll keep it PG. Or we could save it, just like the Peach Cobbler story, we could save it we for later. We could save it for episode. later. Yeah, let's save it for later. It, yeah, it happened when I was a youth intern, and we took take a bunch of high schoolers to whitewater rafting. I totally forgot about that, so mm. you brought that up. Yeah, um, yeah, it involved short shorts and a guide, so that's all I'll say. So. He was free falling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's shift gears and let's talk about the <laughs> land of Israel for a second. So I'll read this passage of scripture and Gabe is going to explain what it means for all of posterity. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It's not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So, Gabe, that's talking about Jews, right? In Deuteronomy 7. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the the, the word Jew is anachronistic to apply it to these people here because um, mm, okay. the, the label Jew comes from the tribe of Judah. And these are, he's referring to all 12 tribes of Israel, although that term Jew has been expanded retroactively to apply to all 12 tribes. So, um, you know, if we're getting really technical, this is, this is speaking to all 12 tribes of Israel. Gotcha. So this is before the kind of label Jewish people was applied to people that we would consider Jewish. Yeah. 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 So this is Israel. He's talking to Mm -hmm. all 12 tribes. In Deuteronomy seven, what what does that what does that mean? If this passage says the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of His treasured possession, what does that mean mm-hmm. in terms of God's relationship to Israel? Well, He selected a family uh, that that grew into a nation to be kind of like the trophy case of His word and His will um, for the world to see, um, and He's going to put these people as kind of like a trophy in a very pivotal point on the globe that is kind of the cross section or the, the crossroads of three different continents with the hopes that if they walk out his commandments and live out his word, that the nations of the world, as they're passing through doing trade or whatever, they will say, what nation is this that, that their, their God has given them a law like this. Um, and hmm. they'll, they'll want to seek out more about this, this God of Israel. So when people say that the Jewish people, that Israel, uh, that they are God's chosen people, it is God choosing them for that role specifically? Is that kind of how we understand that? Yeah, I think it's um, it's saying you, you Israel, you're going to be the vehicle of uh, repair in the world, that you're going to carry with you um, the opportunity um, the potential to be back in this Edenic state, as it were, um, you're going to have this thing called the tabernacle. And in Hebrew, it's actually the Mishkan. And it's it's literally the place of the dwelling. And there's going to be people, you know, wearing robes of glory, walking in and out of this. And there's going to be imagery and symbolism of the garden and what it was like. And this is, again, this is another attempt for me to dwell with with man. Um, if you create this space and keep it really holy, I can dwell there and then people can experience what it was like in the garden. And you, Israel, you're going to be the bearers of this, the protectors of this sacred space. And uh, wow. so it's a big role. It's a really, it's a, it's a, like a royal role as well. 
Yeah. So when Jesus says in John 4, 22, that salvation is from the Jews, mm-hmm. he's, he's alluding to that a little bit, right? He's alluding to this fact that the Jewish people are these, um, they have a role to kind of be the, I guess the host of God's presence in some sense, but what specifically is Jesus talking about when he says salvation is from the Jews? Well, uh, salvation in the Hebrew language is Yeshua. It's a verb. It means to save. So I think on a literal sense, he's saying that from the line of Judah will come salvation, will come Yeshua. And that's where we get the name Jesus from. Um, But also uh, it's through this line, through this family of Israel, that the Redeemer will come, and the, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3, the snake crusher will come, Genesis 3.15, that he will, he will crush the snake's head, but the snake will bruise his heel. This is the seed of the woman that's coming to redeem the, and reverse the curse of the snake. And so that's what I think he's saying, is that through this family line, through, through and specifically the line of, of Judah, and then even more specifically through the line of David, there will come someone who will crush the serpent's head and he will be named Yeshua, which means salvation. So from the Jews comes salvation. But also in Zechariah um, chapter eight, it says that um, many peoples and strong nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to plead before the Lord. And this is what the Lord of hosts says. In those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue will tightly grasp the robe of a Jew and say, let us go with you for we have seen that God is with you. So, yeah, there's something to this um, idea that um, God's giving the Jewish people this righteous moral code, and it's a transcendent moral code. And he's saying, live by this, and if you live by this, things will go well with you. You'll live in my land, and you'll be fruitful, and you'll multiply. And then not only that, but the nations will come and ask you about me, and that will bring salvation to the world. That will bring restoration to the world. Hmm. That's really, really cool. So by and large right now, the Jewish people, um, just if we just take a poll of every ethnic Jew on planet Earth right now, I, we mm-hmm. would probably agree that the majority of them do not believe in Jesus as Messiah. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So this is, I think, where we, we kind of misunderstand this, right? And this is, I think, where the questions come in. Okay, so the Jews are God's chosen people. Jesus is their Messiah. But by and large, they are corporately unbelieving in terms of their faith in Jesus as Messiah. So what in the world is going on with that? Is Did God just reject the Jewish people because they rejected Jesus and move on to the church? Is that is that kind of what happened? Mm. Yeah, this is where we get into some different paradigms and how people view Israel and the church and, and the relationship between the two. Um, and it, and it kind of falls into, uh, I think three different categories where you have this thought process. One is, um, that, you know, it's, it's pretty common, especially before the foundation of the modern state of Israel. A lot of people believed in what we would call supersessionism or replacement theology, which says that, um, God divorced Israel, he cut off Israel, and now he's going with plan B, and he's created a new entity that's running completely independent of and actually living out the promises and the righteousness that Israel is supposed to. And that entity is called the ecclesia, or in English, the church. Hmm. And that that is replacing Israel, that's superseding Israel, and that God is now working through plan B with this new entity called the church. And, and what do you call that theology? You said replacement theology is one name for it, but the other yeah, name was super supersessionism. Supersessionism. Okay. Yeah. So that, the, that's that's door number one. Yeah, and the the middle of the two would be something called bilateral ecclesiology, where God has not completely put Israel away, and He is not done with Israel, um, but also God did create this new entity called the ecclesia, called the church. But the two, you have ethnic Israel or Jews. And you have the church, those who believe in Jesus, and they're running bilateral to each other. They're running parallel to each other. And soon, the you know, in the last days upon the return of Christ, the, the two will merge into one. Some, um, at least one, I don't know of a uh, famous pastor and evangelist that believes in bilateral ecclesiology would be uh, John Hagee. Okay, um, yeah. 
And then the he's third, the guy that's all about the moons. He loves the moons. Yeah, yeah. The blood <laughs> moons. Red moons and super moons and harvest moons. Yeah. Yes. yes. I wonder if he moons people because he likes moons so much. Anyway. Mm, mm, that would be terrifying. <laughs> um the third the third group, the third category would be um hold that God did not put Israel away, but and not finish with Israel, but rather he made a covenant with Israel. He will remain true to that covenant with Israel. And that those who believe in Christ through faith, they're like adopted into the commonwealth of Israel. And they share in the covenants and promises of Israel. In other words, they're scooting a chair up to the table of the family of Israel. And <laughs> there is space for them. And they're dining at that table. Um, and this is, I think we called this uh, commonwealth theology. Is that what we called it yesterday? Yeah, 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 yeah. So we were talking about this language of the commonwealth. So a good way to understand it is like um, during the days of Queen Victoria in England, England and Great Britain had a commonwealth that extended as far as like India. And so people that lived in India, even though they were distinctly uh, different in their culture from those who lived in England, they were still under the commonwealth of Great Britain. So they still had a common ruler. They still had a common law. They still had a common um, government, in a sense. But they were brought in, they were grafted in, to use that language of Romans 11, mm-hmm. this commonwealth. And so that's kind of the picture that that we get, specifically in Romans 11, mm-hmm. that we are grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. We are not ethnically Jewish if we're Gentile, and we still have our own culture but we are still under the government of King Yeshua. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that falls in line with Ephesians chapter two. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles in the flesh um, and called uncircumcised by the circumcision, by those who are, who are called circumcised by the, in the body, by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise and without hope in God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Um, For he himself is our peace who has made the two into one and has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. So in other words, he's taking Jew and Gentile and through faith in him, he's merging them into one entity. Um, and that is like, like he says, like you're part now of the, the commonwealth of this family called Israel. And I think we're going to go into Romans 11 a little bit and talk about some of the language that Paul uses there, the agricultural language. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Romans 11 is a fascinating chapter of the Bible. And one of the reasons that we're talking about this today is I'm actually teaching on Romans 11 this weekend. And, and so I got to sit down with a good friend of mine, Sean Steckbeck, who, um, lived in Israel for 15 years. His wife is, uh. Israeli. She's, she grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family. And so we just sat for about two hours at a coffee shop and I said, man, help me understand this. And, and in true Jewish form, he started asking me questions. <laughs> and so he got out his copy of the, the, you know, his, his Jewish uh, or his Hebrew um, Bible. And we went to Isaiah and we went to Zechariah and then we finally landed in Romans 11. And so one of the things that we walk through is that Romans 11 seems to indicate that there is still a plan for ethnic Israel, even while it acknowledges that there are unbelieving Jews. So the the language that's used in uh, Romans 11 is that there is this hardening and it's a temporary hardening that's happening, like a temporary blindness. Um, so that the gospel message can be taken to the Gentiles and the Gentile nations, which, by the way, that's anybody that's not Jewish. So if you're listening to this and you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. Um, So that these Gentile nations make Israel jealous. But it's not like a a sinful, bad jealousy, but it's like a a, a jealousy as if, you know, um, my kids one day just looked at me and said, Dad, we don't want to be in your family anymore. We're leaving. And I was like, well, okay. And so they, they walked out and then I found some other kids that wanted a dad. And so I took them in and I loved them. And then my kids uh, were poor and destitute. And on a snowy, cold Christmas morning, they happened to walk by my house and look into the window and they saw me loving and caring for these adopted 
kids and they looked through the window and thought, man, that should be me right now. Mm -hmm. And so it's this kind of role that we have as Gentiles of enjoying and embracing the promise of God for the purpose of the Jewish people looking upon that and saying, that should be me right now. That is the God of Israel that they are embracing. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's not like they stopped being your children. Yeah, um, absolutely. They were, just, they were just, they opted to be out of your presence at that time. Yeah. But what you described, and I think we talked about it yesterday, what you described is foreshadowed in the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph is a shadow and a picture of Messiah where he is rejected by his own brothers. Um, you know, he's put into a pit and brought back out. He's, you know, he's even sold for, for silver. And then he becomes in Egypt, the savior of the known Gentile world, and he saves them from famine, um, which is a picture of like, you know, bread is always a picture of truth and knowledge and righteousness. Um, you know, it's like this, this son who has shown favor, rejected by his brothers, he goes into to, to Egypt. And then through desperation, his brothers come to him. They, they go into exile to Egypt looking for bread. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things going on there with, you know, a lot of more symbolism going on, but long story short, they don't recognize their own brother who they betrayed. And Joseph finally opens up and says, I am Joseph, your brother. And he says, but don't worry because what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So I think that that's a picture of the fact that just like Isaiah 53 prophesies that the Messiah would have to be rejected. Um, He would have to be scorned, but then he would become a light to the nations. Hmm. And that through that, um, like Paul says, the the native-born branches of this olive tree would grow in, in zeal and jealousy because they would see, wait, the nations are doing, wait, they believe in our Messiah. You know? And so um, it also goes back to Galatians chapter 3 where Paul says, um, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you, all the nations will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So where does it say that all you through, through you, all the nations will be blessed? Paul there is quoting Genesis chapter 12, verse three. Hmm. And he says, I will, I will bless those who bless you. Um, uh, and I will curse those who curse you, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So, so that basically means that God's plan of redemption started with the Jews or, mm-hmm. the, or Israel, but God was saying that Israel is going to be the vehicle through which mm-hmm. blessing and salvation is going to come to the entire world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, so— Go ahead. Well, because Paul says, you know, what profit is there in being a Jew? And he says much in every way because they have preserved the very oracles of God. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, some of it goes back to the scribal traditions and just how meticulous the scribes were in, in preserving the, the biblical texts for us that we can have them today. Um, you know, that's that's just one aspect of it is that yeah. um, they were a very scribal based religion and still are. Yeah. Well, and, and the Christian faith is exceptionally Jewish. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the apostles were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. <laughs> the New Testament is very yeah. Jewish. You know, I, I think it's a shame how often we don't recognize the Jewishness of our faith as Gentile believers, even in what we call the Last Supper or, uh, you know, communion. It's actually mm-hmm. would have been a Seder dinner, a, a Passover dinner. Yeah. And, and Jesus was doing a lot with showing the the wine and the bread representing his, his body and his blood. Um, but I think what's interesting about Romans 11, and that kind of leads into the state of the world right now, is that Paul writes in Romans 11, this is verse 25, he says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Hmm. So what in the world does that mean? Well, just like if I go back to the story of Joseph, um, their eyes were shut in a way 
um, they were they had scales over them, so to speak, as to, to as to who Joseph really was, um, and Joseph revealing his true identity to them uh, brought in his entire family. So, mm-hmm. if you recall, Joseph goes back and he says, "I want you to bring my father and my brother Benjamin. Bring everybody here. I will give you the choicest land in Goshen." And you'll be set up. You'll be saved from this famine because there's seven more years to come. Um, so, I, you know, I I don't know how exactly it's all going to play out, but I believe more supernaturally than anything else, the eyes of the Jewish people will be opened to their their savior, their brother who they betrayed. And I believe, like Zechariah says, that they will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for as one mourns for an only son. And I think that he will say to them, I am Yeshua, I am Jesus, but don't worry because what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Wow. That salvation would come to the nations that come to the world. And I believe he will forgive them and have mercy on them. So is this the Bible prophesying of some sort of national revival amongst the Jewish people in the last days? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, And it also talks about in... Romans 11, this remnant, right? That Paul's mm-hmm. like, hey, I'm <laughs> God's not rejected Israel because I'm a Jew. This mm-hmm. is what he says in verse one. He's like, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm Jewish. I came to faith in Christ. So obviously God's not done with Israel because here's me, Paul, uh, son of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He's like a super Jew. He's mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Jew, Mr. Jew, Mr. Juniverse, right? Uh, <laughs> and he says, God has also preserved a remnant and he quotes Elijah and a remnant is kind of this small um, group, kind of a small leftover. I don't want to say leftover, but what's a better word for remnant to help people understand that language. I wrote it down somewhere. Let me look and see. You come up with a better explanation well, of what yeah, remnant I say, means. I would say a fraction of, of something that, that is left. Um, uh, yeah. After, after, yeah. Okay, here's a good definition. A small remaining quantity of something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so Paul uses the example of the remnant in the days of Elijah. So it's Mm 7,000 men. And so that's not a whole lot. But what God is saying to Elijah is, Elijah, I still have people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I still have people who are faithful to me, even in spite of the majority not being faithful to me. And... If you look throughout the ages of church history, there has been a small but a vibrant Messianic Christian community mm-hmm. um, of ethnic Jews who embrace Jesus as Messiah. It's that remnant, and it's it's yeah. still happening. Obviously, you you lead a Messianic congregation, so mm-hmm. you could probably speak to that more than I could. Yeah, yeah, especially in the nineteen nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, there seemed to be a resurgence of um, Jews coming to faith and Jesus as their Messiah, but also wanting to maintain their Jewish identity and, and religious um, practices. Um, and that, that brought forth a whole movement called the Messianic Jewish movement or Messianic Judaism. Um, yeah, so that, that is growing. And, and even some people within Orthodox Judaism would describe it as, uh, who, who are very vehemently opposed to Messianic Judaism, would describe it as the second Holocaust. Um, because so many people, oh, wow. they, they see them as converting to Christianity, where a Jew who accepts Jesus as their Messiah says, no, I'm still Jewish. I'm in every respect. I'm even practicing Judaism. I'm just, I believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah of Israel. Um, that they, they, you know, they're ostracized by Judaism, uh, normative Judaism, because, you know, that's, to them, it's just not, it's not kosher yet. Um, but yeah, there's, there absolutely still is a remnant, a growing remnant, especially in Israel right now of people who, who profess faith in, in Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. So if this is what we believe about God's relationship towards the Jewish people, that God has chosen them, that Paul says in Romans 11, I'll just read this. He says, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Mm. So God doesn't call a people and God doesn't call people to himself and then go, you know what? Never mind. <laughs> I'm taking it back, right? There's no take backsies with God. He he puts his he sets his love on them. He makes mm-hmm. them a people uh, according to his promise. Yeah. 
And yet many of them have rejected Jesus as Messiah. But Paul says that's all in the plan of God. That's so the Gentile nations can uh, grow in their love and relationship with God to make ethnic Israel jealous. But there will come a day when that remnant grows and grows and grows because many Jews will see Jesus as Messiah. Mm -hmm. What should our posture as Gentile believers be towards ethnic Jews right now? Um, to realize that there is a a very long and tenuous history between Judaism and Christianity, in which Christianity um, has not always been uh, kind and loving and showing the character of their Messiah to them. And that has prolonged this hardening of their hearts towards him. Um, you know, when you... Uh, say that you're you're a Christian to a Orthodox Jew, um, right away they think about things like um, the pogroms in Europe. They think about um, the Inquisitions and the expulsion of Jews from Spain. They think about the Crusades. They think about, you know, the Holocaust even. They they would see as some some of the people perpetrating the Holocaust being, being well, Christians. But. And even the Protestant Reformation. I mean, Martin Luther said some pretty horrible things about Jews and suggested we should kill all the Jews. Yeah, he actually yeah. said that we should be burning all of their sacred objects and prayer books. And, you know, that you know, later in his life, Luther wrote The Jews and Their Lies. And when some of the top Nazis official, Nazi officials were arrested and tried, they said, well, all we're doing is putting legs on what Luther wanted to do. Wow. Um, and it's really sad. But yeah, so you have to think about those things that the memory within the collective Jewish world is much longer and deeper than that of evangelical Christian world. Um, so when you walk up to a Jew and you hand them a track and say, if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to hell, you you are right away, <laughs> you're not in the right spot. You're not coming from the right. Um, so, you know, one of the best things we can do is, especially in this political climate right now, is to protect and uphold and defend the lives of the Jewish people as being um, still uh, God's chosen people and still um, very viable in the plan and prophetic picture of scripture. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Um, well, let's shift gears for a second because that is very, 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 I think on the mind of a lot of Christians right now, as we look at what's happening in the nation of Israel. So Israel as a nation state, so not, not ethnic, Jews in particular, because we know that there are people of Jewish background and descent all over the world. But there is a nation state called Israel mm -hmm. that has been in the news a lot over the past month. And I think there's a lot of Christians that are going, okay, how are we supposed to feel about this? What What is our role in supporting this nation state of Israel? Because obviously it's a secular nation. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. not a uh, it's not a theocracy like we read about in the Bible. Um, and so I think there's a lot of Christians, including myself, and you and I have talked about this, just trying to figure out, okay, what is my role in how I'm to feel about this secular nation state of Israel? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, it, and this is the part where your worldview on this particular topic, How remember we talked about those three different paradigms supersessionism or bilateral ecclesiology or commonwealth theology, um, whatever paradigm you have what, as you're listening to this right now, um, that informs you and that, that gives you your bias of how you should watch the news pertaining to Israel. So if you have a supersessionist or a replacement theology bias, you're going to be watching the news about Israel um, and not have any sort of attachment to Israel. And in fact, you might say, well, God's done with them. What they get is what they deserve, you know, and mm -hmm. they've been disobedient, they're cursed or whatever the case may be. That's going to inform you of your, of your bias. But what we want to do is get our um, paradigm from Scripture and let Scripture inform us how we should be watching the news and not, yeah. not the church fathers even, not Luther, not Calvin. But scripture, that's so yeah. important that we do that. Absolutely. Well, let's just take a very brief uh, look at the timeline of the nation of Israel for a second. So the geographic area that is modern Israel is where the Bible says Abraham's descendants settled, right? The land of Canaan. Mm -hmm. 
and you walk through the narrative of the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, you see that in the time of Judges and Ruth, it was the Jewish people, or not just the Jewish people, but Israel, right? Mm -hmm. And they were uh, often at war with different neighboring tribes and peoples in that land to uh, kind of take that land of promise. And then you had the time of the kings. So King David, King Solomon, the temple in Jerusalem. And then the Bible begins to, you know, show that these kings got really, really wicked and they didn't follow the God of Israel. And so there's the divided kingdom with Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And if you know your Old Testament, you know how that ended. Uh, the Assyrians invaded, destroyed the kingdom of the north and the Babylonians uh, conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the first temple was replaced by the second temple. But over the next few centuries, you see the Bible talks about the, the Persians, the Medes, the Greeks, and then the Romans. That's who was in power when Jesus was born, came in and, and just conquered and ruled Israel. So Israel never really had uh, their national uh, political identity um, after the Assyrians and Babylonians invaded. Is that is that kind of fair up to this point, yeah. say. And, and because the southern kingdom was called the kingdom of Judah, mm -hmm. um, that's kind of where we get the people who lived in Judah became called the Yehudim or the the, the Yehudi or the, the Jews. That's gotcha. kind of where that term came from. Okay. So after the Roman Empire, there were the Arabs, the Fatimids, the Turks, and then, of course, the Crusades all were being fought over that land in Israel. Um the Egyptians, a lot of Muslims would come in and, 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 you know, that also became kind of sacred land to people, of the Muslim faith in Jerusalem. Yeah. And then from 1517 to 1917, uh, Israel along with a lot of the Middle East was ruled by the Ottoman empire. And so world war one was really what began to shift things and change things because, after World War One, the the Ottoman Empire collapsed, and um, basically, the UK, the British government, uh, supported the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. So, mm -hmm. this area was, um, you know, under four hundred year Ottoman rule, and when Great Britain took over, we got what is modern-day Israel, Palestine, and Jordan, and they just called it Palestine, and that was in 1918. And speak a little bit, Gabe, to the treatment of Jews. Like, what? where were the Jews uh, during this time, the Jewish people before 1918? I mean, they were kind of scattered all over the world at that time, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, if we could back up, too, I think it's important yeah, sure. to, to mention in the 7th century that this new religion came on the scene called Islam. It was founded mm. by the prophet Muhammad, obviously. Yes. And, you know, the prophet Muhammad is said to have ascended into heaven from the very point where the Jews say that the Holy of Holies sat on the Temple Mount. So mm -hmm. because Islam has, you know, had control of the land of Palestine and control of the Temple Mount, it's only natural that they erect a shrine over the place where they believed Muhammad ascended into heaven, which also happened to be where the Holy of Holies sat. And that shrine became called the the uh, the Dome of the Rock. Yes. Um, and so, in most pictures in Jerusalem, that kind of gold dome you see. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. That is not a it's not a mosque. It's a shrine. Now, there is a mosque adjacent to that called the Alaska Mosque. But this site and this 36-acre temple mount, this plateau that sits on the eastern edge of the city of Jerusalem on the old, in the old city, that is the third holiest site in the religion of Islam. It's the mm. first holiest site in all of Judaism, the third holiest site in all of Islam. So wow. to say that there is tension surrounding this, um, <laughs> this one particular spot on the globe is, is an understatement. Yeah, um, no joke. So, uh, yeah, if we fast forward again now to the 1900s, um, Jews are beginning to see the writing on the wall with uh, the coming of, you know, the Third Reich, um, you know, in the 1920s and early 1930s, anti-Semitism is growing. It becomes a national platform um, for 
the Nazi party, the, the, the National Socialist Party within Germany. Um, and it really begins to, to gain some traction. Um, and Hitler is elected, you know, obviously as president of, of Germany. Um, and he has this, uh, one of, one of the, the, the tenets of his political platform was the eradication of the unfit and the unwanted within Europe and really the, the whole world. Mm. And in fact, we have communication where Hitler was talking to leaders of the Middle Eastern countries, a lot of Arab countries, um, conspiring with them and saying, when we're done cleaning up what he called the Jewish problem in Europe, we'll then move on and help you clean up the Jewish problem in the Middle East. And he was actually oh, wow. collecting and getting estimates from these Arab leaders on how many Jews they think are living in their country. Wow. Um, so, That's crazy. yeah, yeah. Um, so anyways, Jews are beginning to see the writing on the wall and they begin to leave, you know, to go all, they, they go all over the world. Um, but one of the places they really seek out is their ancestral land, um, mm. which is, which is called British Palestine at that time. Um, and so the British aren't actually letting them in. The British are actually turning away loads and loads of people. Some are able to sneak in. Um, but really it wasn't till, um, after the Holocaust ended and World War II had ended, um, in 1945 and 1946, that there was a flood of Jewish immigrants coming. Many of them with just one, you know, suitcase or just the clothes on their back, um, trying to get to a place where they can kind of pick up and start over. And that was to them, uh, their ancestral land. Yeah. Now, simultaneously with that, however, the, the land that, that would we called British Palestine or Israel was occupied by tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, uh, of people, probably of Persian descent, um, that became called, um, the Palestinians mm-hmm. that comes from the fact that they're living in the land of Palestine, um, is why they took on the name Palestinians, why they right. were given that name. But they like, would have been from anywhere from Jordan, Syria, Iran, yeah. just any, any Middle Eastern, so of Arab descent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. So, but th- what's interesting is the reason why they're called, why that whole land is called Palestine is because the, the Romans named it Palestine when they mm-hmm. leveled the city of Jerusalem. They did it as kind of a mockery towards the Jewish people because they know the history between the Palestine, the, the Philistines and the Jewish people. Oh, wow. So it was almost like a smack in the face to them. And so they named it Palestinia um, and the name just kind of stuck. You know, and even the British wow. called it uh, British Palestine. Sure. And so then these people, these Arabs who occupied that land, um, they they took on the name Palestinians. Hmm. Um, so it's a, a very interesting dynamic in history there. So yeah. as Jews are moving in, leaving the Holocaust and the ashes of the Holocaust and taking up residence and creating settlements and these villages and these communities called uh, kibbutzim, which are basically like farming communities – um, you know, there's, there's inevitably there, there's tension that grows, um, in these, in these communities. And so the British are like, what is going on? The British ultimately are kind of like, you know what, we're going to slowly back away from this weird situation, yeah. this yeah, situation. Yeah. Um, we're going to hand this over and that's when they come up with the Balfour, uh, declaration. Sure. So the Balfour declaration was basically the Jewish homeland. So giving that land over to the Jewish people mm-hmm. and the most Arab nations were vehemently opposed to it because they thought, man, that's going to mean that the Arab Palestinians are going to get, you know, under the boot of the Jewish people. And that all led to Israel becoming an independent state in 1948. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. They, they gained their, they declared their independence and then, um, yeah, the UN voted to, to identify them as a sovereign nation. So in 1948, and I don't know, this isn't our show notes. You may know this, you may not. Was, was there like Jewish and Arab sectors of Israel in 1948, or did they consider it just all one nation called mm-hmm. Israel? Um, that is a good question. I, they were definitely segregated neighborhoods and probably villages, entire, entire villages and cities that were predominantly Arab and predominantly Jews. But they they coexisted relatively well. Yeah. Um, you know, I I have friends who um, grew up in the West Bank and Ramallah, and um, you know, they said that they coexisted well until 
until the declaration of independence yeah. by, the, by the Jews in 1948. Yeah. But, you know, all hell kind of broke loose at that point. Yeah. And the hostility we kind of, you know, unpacked it a little bit is that both Jews and Arabs claimed and, and kind of had a history that pointed to this is our, this is our land. This is our ancestral mm-hmm. home. Yeah. And then both Jews and Muslims considered the city of Jerusalem sacred for reasons which you shared, the Temple Mount and the Dome of the Rock and all that stuff. But a lot of the tension and the conflict of the recent years has kind of centered around the Gaza Strip. So that's this piece of land between Egypt and Israel. The Golan Heights, that's between Syria and Israel. Mm -hmm. And the West Bank, and that's between Israel and Jordan. Yeah, and I would add also the Temple Mount, which yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. the epicenter of the most recent um, you know, violence that started yeah. um, during Ramadan. Yeah. Yeah. So immediately, so 1948, the nation of Israel is established, and there is a war in 1948. So <laughs> mm. there's five Arab nations, Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, immediately invaded the region. Uh in what became known as the Arab-Israeli War of 1948. And um, which is, so here's, this is just like a fascinating thing to me. If you look at all of the the wars and hostility against Israel, uh, Israel has been like under constant attack from all the surrounding nations since 1948. And mm-hmm. those nations have not been able to, to gain much of a foothold at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's God's hand of protection over that land. It has to be. Um, it has to be. You know, there's a lot of stories that came out of some of these wars where, you know, invading columns of tanks would see these angels standing over, you know, Israeli troops that were very ill-equipped. Um, and they were just absolutely terrified and abandoned their posts and retreated. Wow. You know, things like that. You hear stories of, of, of those sorts of things. Wow. So there's the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. There's the Suez Crisis in 1956. That's the Suez Canal there with Egypt. The Six-Day War in 1967. So that's Israel defeating Egypt, Jordan, and Syria in six days. And then Israel took control of the Gaza Strip, the Sinai Peninsula, and the West Bank, and the Golan Heights. And then there's the Yom Kippur War in 1973. And that is basically Egypt and Syria tried to catch Israel off guard on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. Uh, The Lebanon War in 1982. And then it really kind of gets into what we see happening today with uh, with the establishment of kind of what would be considered, I would, I would consider, I think a lot of people do terrorist groups in these nations of Lebanon and, uh, in Palestine and that is Hezbollah and Hamas. Mm -hmm. And so the second Lebanon war was in 2006 and that was Hezbollah. This was this militant Shiite Muslim group that basically sees their goal as to eradicate the nation of Israel. Mm -hmm. And then Hamas, we've, you know, seen that in the news a lot, but in 2006, 2008, 2012, 2014, this is a, Sunni Islamic militant group that also sees their goal is to eradicate, I would say, not just the nation of Israel, but also the Jewish people. I mean, they, yeah, they want to see them gone completely. Oh yeah. Some, some leaders of Hamas have said, yeah, Jews returning to Israel, bring them on, bring them on, bring all the Jews from the world, come to Israel so that they're all in one place so that we don't have to hunt them down. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, 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 the word Hamas is actually an acronym of an Arabic phrase which means um, Islamic resistance movement. But it's also an Arabic word, which means zeal, strength, or bravery. But the interesting about that is Hamas is also a Hebrew word, which means violence. Oh, wow. But not just any violence. It's connected to the concept of like a bird of prey swooping down. Like my mother-in-law has chickens. And, you know, when a hawk comes down out of a tree and grabs a chicken, the chicken's just kind of minding its own business. It's just kind of doing its thing. And out of nowhere, this hawk comes down and will just, it can take the head off of a chicken and fly off, you know? Right. Um, but that is the idea of the Hebrew concept of Hamas. It's what the world was full of before God flooded the earth is hmm. Hamas. The earth was full of Hamas. And so it's interesting that Hamas, the terrorist organization, 
sees itself as zeal, strength, bravery. It's a resistance movement. Whereas that same word in the Hebrew language is the idea of unexpected, unwarranted violence. And aggression. Yeah. 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 Well, and it's funny, you see those things playing out. I mean, just on, uh, I think, people's political understanding of the recent conflict, which we'll kind of, we'll kind of get into here in a minute. But there are some people that are just like, man, the, the Palestinian people, they have been treated so horribly by Israel and so good for them for standing up against Israel. And, and I, you know, you see this in in the news. I was listening to, to NPR the other day, and I guess there's a, uh, I don't know if it's a senator or representative from an Islamic background that grew up in, she has family in Palestine, and she was like crying on the news talking about how mistreated the Palestinian people have been. And, and we'll get into that. I mean, obviously, Israel's a secular nation state, so that doesn't mean everything Israel is a secular nation state has done has been perfect. Yeah, but it's so interesting. It's almost like the national collective consciousness of so many in the U.S. is to sympathize with this terrorist group that has said very clearly, "We want to eradicate the Jewish people off the face of the earth." Yeah, and because people don't understand that dynamic, they just think they're freedom fighters, and they're they're really not. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. Goes back to that paradigm that you're being informed by is. You know, depending on which paradigm, even within the evangelical Christian world, or you know, um, some of these more progressive or postmodern sects of Christianity, if you have the paradigm of supersessionism, you're going to see this. You're you're going to look at the mainstream media and how they portray some of these events with that paradigm and that that bias, and that could potentially be very unscriptural when it when it at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, let's look at the most recent conflict. So it started on May sixth. And at the time of recording this podcast today is uh, May 27th. So the, the ceasefire only happened a week ago. But from yeah. May 6th to May 21st, 2021, uh, on May 6th, Palestinians began protesting in East Jerusalem over what was the anticipated decision of the Supreme Court of Israel to evict six Palestinian families from a neighborhood in East Jerusalem. Yeah. And so that area is technically a part of the Palestinian territory that Israel is currently occupying. So basically in, in certain areas, like in East Jerusalem and the Golan Heights, and you will have what is Israel and then what is Palestine. And to go into Palestine, you have to go through checkpoints. And to go into Israel, you have to go through checkpoints. And so it's like this, it's a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there was this protests that happened and that protest grew bigger and bigger and bigger. And on May 7th, Palestinian uh, protesters threw rocks at Israeli police. So the police responded by storming the compound of a mosque there in East Jerusalem with tear gas, rubber bullets and stun grenades. Yeah. And not just any mosque. This is the Temple Mount that we're talking about. Oh, this is, is it? This is oh, the Alaska mosque. So they went up onto the Temple Mount, the third holiest site in all of Islam during Ramadan, during Oh, um, during prayers. Yeah, that but, changes yeah. things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's that's why it was. And so, you know, these on top of the Temple Mount, there was a legit protest and what, what was bordering on civil unrest. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what prompted the Israeli police to come up in, in the first place. Yeah. Whether or not that was a wise decision at that point in time, I, you know, I don't know. But right, 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 um, right. That is what kicked off these events. Yeah. So that was May 6th and 7th. And three days later. Hamas, that group we were talking about, this Sunni Islamic militant group, basically threatened Israeli police. And they said, if you don't get your forces out of the mosque compound, if you don't withdraw your forces from East Jerusalem, we're going to send rockets. And Israeli police didn't withdraw. So Hamas and other Palestinian Islamic Jihad groups started launching rockets into several places in Jerusalem, I believe. Was it East Jerusalem or was it just all over Israel? Uh, all over Israel. It's kind of at random because these rockets are not like guided whatsoever. They just kind of arbitrarily are fired in a general direction and they hit, you know, wherever they hit. Yeah. So Israel responded to these rocket uh, attacks with an airstrike campaign in Gaza. 
And by the end of it, you know, the ceasefire happened on May 21st. There was 248 Palestinians killed, 1,900 injured, 13 Israelis killed, 20 injured, or excuse me, 200 injured, and altogether 72,000 Palestinians displaced. So when the ceasefire was signed, both sides essentially claimed victory and said it was a victory for us. And so, I mean, it was it was really interesting watching the news and seeing all that develop. And we obviously have God's word that tells us certain things about the Jewish people. And then we see kind of this deep hatred of the Jewish people from the surrounding nations. Like, why is there such a deep hatred of the Jewish people occupying this land from all these surrounding nations? Uh, I don't know. They probably all have various, various reasons and motives. Um, um, but you know, it, it, it is incongruent with the Muslim faith to have um, a nation of Israel and Jews occupying the land of Israel. Um, that is, that is not conducive to the, to the Muslim faith. Whereas, it is completely conducive and actually um, part of the plan of Scripture is that God's people be in His land. Now, ideally, they will be living righteously and according to His paths and His judgments. Um, but I, I think that we're seeing that tension growing because we're living in the last days and that we're seeing um, not only the restoration of the people in the land, but hopefully soon we'll see the spiritual revival of those people in that land as well. Yeah. So here's like, I think the big question that I've heard from a lot of people, and I've wondered myself. So if God gave the Jewish people this promised land, does that mean that we as Christians have to support every political or military decision that the secular nation state of Israel makes? So we mm-hmm. see a, Jewish airstrike or an Israeli airstrike that it hits a hospital or a school. Are we supposed to like applaud and go, yay, Israel every single time? I mean, what, what is that? What does that look like? If we see injustice on the part of the Israeli government, what, what should our response to that be? Uh, condemnation. I think, I think we should condemn any, and not only condemn, but just be grieved by any uh, loss of innocent human life. Um, and, you know that's that's um, that saddens me that there's, there's especially children involved in this conflict that are going to be for the rest of their lives uh, um, have a deep seated hatred towards a certain people group because you know they lost a loved one or they lost their home. Um, that's so sad, and um, I wish that weren't the case. I wish um, you know, like Isaiah talks about, I wish we could all beat our swords and our spears into plowshares Hmm. um but we're just not there yet you know and um you know i don't i don't think any amount of airstrikes or um the iron dome or anything like that that i don't think that's going to bring the peace that messiah will bring Hmm. that's not going to bring life-changing transformation a world-changing transformation like his kingship realized on earth will bring and in the meantime we're grieved and we're saddened by the loss of innocent human life yeah, yeah, I was going to say absolutely. We sh- we don't accept political ideologies um, wholesale. We we read everything through the lens of scripture, um, and yeah, Israel is is a is a very secular state, governmentally speaking. It's it wasn't originally supposed to be the when it was set up in in the nineteen forties a religious um, government driven by religious ideals. It was based on democracy and Judeo-Christian principles, largely influenced by the West. Um, but there is a religious uh, minority that is growing within Israel. But there are some, especially Tel Aviv is one of the most godless places you can go. Oh, in yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, my father-in-law, uh, he is a pilot. He does business in Tel Aviv. And yeah, I mean, it's just like any Western city. And there's a huge LBGTQ population in Tel Aviv and a big kind of nightlife thing. So it's not, you know, anyone that thinks that Israel is just this super holy religious place. Uh, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not, um, yeah. And I think that's kind of an attention to sort through. I think, like you said, our theological understanding of Israel kind of drives how we view these events unfolding on the news. So I Mm -hmm. wonder if there's this place that we're, 
to be at where we see God's promise to the Jewish people and we see his promise to this land. But at the same time, we understand that like, even though that is God's promise and that is his plan, human responsibility and human brokenness still leads to injustice happening and we don't applaud Mm -hmm. the injustice. I mean, is that, is that kind of how we're supposed to be viewing that? I mean, yeah. And you know, Palestinian and Arabs and Muslims, they, they coexist just fine, uh, for the most part in the nation of Israel. Uh, you know, I've, I've walked through the Muslim quarter and Muslim neighborhoods in the city of Jerusalem and there's peace, there's friendliness, hospitality. Um, you know, it just seems like when, uh, men who take their faith, uh, fundamentalist and extremists who take their faith, um, to the point of now we need to act on this and now we need to, to take innocent human lives because, um, you know, that's just where it goes too far, I guess. And it, there was, it, there was a couple guys in my classroom, um, before we got out for summer break, these guys came up to me and they asked me in my history class, you know, what do you think, Mr. Rutledge, about this whole thing? And one student was very pro-Israel, um, Israel can, can do no harm, you know, and the other guy was like free Palestine, you know, we need a two solution, we need a two state solution here. Um, Israel is is evil. They're they're like you know basically creating these concentration camps in Gaza Strip, and they kept going back and forth. And I said, guys, you could be sitting here for another hundred years, going back through the history of who did what in in this land, and you still would probably not get to the bottom of it. There is a deep history of of he did this, but yeah, but he did that to me, and it goes all the way back to one man taking matters into his own hands and that is abraham through mm-hmm. his disbelief he decided i'm going to take my servant hagar and have a child with her mm-hmm. and that created a, a world of problems um because he said i i don't fully trust in god's promises mm-hmm. um and you know i i have many arab friends who are great people love the lord with all their heart and you know i'm so glad that they're here in existence but the 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 principle and the idea that um, when we lack trust in the Creator and His promises, and we take matters and we force His hand on things, um, it just doesn't go well for us. Yeah, yeah, and that's interesting to to note that yes, this is a conflict that has been going as far back as Isaac and Ishmael, mm-hmm. and that, that was even prophesied, right? That they would. Yeah have conflict. And we see this today between the Arab and Israeli people. So I will say, I can say with, with certainty, if you read your Bible and you believe the Bible is the word of God, then the Jewish people have a divine right to live in that land and have possession of that land. As long as they're living according to the righteous decrees that God set forth in his word. Hmm. If you read your Bible and you believe it is the word of God, then that is undeniable. It's there. It's all over. It's a very, very prevalent theme, um, especially in the prophets, that he would again regather his people. But again, his their dwelling in the land is contingent upon their obedience to his commandments. Interesting. So as we come to close, what would you say our responsibility is as gentile believers to support israel i mean you see i feel like i see that on you know people's facebook they change their change their profile picture to an israeli flag i support israel it's like okay so what does that mean (laughs) you change your facebook picture wow good job good for you we're changing the world over here uh what should our prayers for israel look like how do we support israel what does that mean Mm. we already talked about what that doesn't mean doesn't mean every single political or military decision israel makes we just give a big thumbs up like what does that look like responsibly to say I stand with the, the Jewish people and I and I support the land of Israel? Yeah. Uh, well, we we could pray Psalm one twenty two verse six. Shalu shalom Yerushalayim. Uh, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you prosper, and may there be peace within your walls and mm. prosperity inside your fortresses. And also praying for the kingdom to come soon and in our days. And we pray in the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because with his kingdom comes real lasting peace and judgment and arbitration between all of these things. 
when these these brothers and these all these sons of Abraham will finally be reconciled to each other and there can be true genuine lasting ceasefires you know yeah. we'll be focused so much on learning from our king and being in the presence of our king and you know teaching the precepts of our king that we won't have time to fight or yeah. argue but yeah i think it's really important that we recognize that Israel has a right to that land, biblically speaking, contingent upon their obedience to his word, yeah. and that we um, support them being there, but not wholesale accept every um, act of, of violence that seems unwarranted or unjustified, and we are saddened by any loss of innocent human life. Yeah, yeah absolutely. What, what a day that's going to be when Arabs and Jews in the kingdom... Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, or brothers. You know what I'm saying? I I think that's such a uh, God has a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and so yeah. man, I just look forward to that. I just look forward to seeing that. I think there's going to be a lot of, uh, I don't know. It's going to be a good moment. So, yeah. well, I feel like I should say something in Hebrew to you to end our <laughs> podcast today, but you speak Hebrew and I don't, so I don't know how how that would work. So, oh, yeah, yeah. So you could say uh you could say one of my favorite words to say tach shivli. Tach shivli. What it does means, it mean? It means like listen to me. And <laughs> you better listen to me. Tach shivli. Tach shivli. Well, I mean, I could listen to that because that's talk, you know, like hey, talk. Yeah. Talk. Listen to me talk. Yeah. So all right, man. That's been a good good episode. I've really enjoyed fleshing this stuff out. So Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important to remember that. Our, our posts on social media are likely not going to solve a, a, a few thousand year old dispute and problem. What? Yeah. I thought um, changing my Facebook profile picture solved everything. No. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying don't do that. Um, you know, pray about anything you post on social media. Um, do it with discernment and wisdom. But um, we should not be dividing the body of Messiah over this issue but yeah. rather um, seeking his will and studying his word even more as we see the days uh, drawing to a close and, and his return becoming more and more imminent. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Well, if you have any questions about any of this stuff, you can email Gabe Rutledge. Uh, <laughs> <Why say that? laughs> and I will probably not respond. No. <laughs> Beards of Bible Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, thanks so much for listening. We will see you guys next time. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>